your best foot forward is an old English phrase. It was first used back in the year 1613. It means to embark on a journey or a task with purpose and gusto. Well, in John chapters 12 and 13, Jesus is headed to the cross, and he puts his best foot forward. He heads to Jerusalem for his last Passover. You know, it's interesting that our chapters today both start and finish with feet. They begin when a woman anoints Jesus' feet with an expensive perfume, and they end with Jesus taking a bowl and a towel to wash his disciples' feet. Jesus is about to save the world, and he puts his best foot forward. Verse 1 tells us, John chapter 12, verse 1, Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. And what a joyous reunion this must have been. Can you imagine Jesus and Lazarus? Coming back together, swapping notes, reliving the experience. Imagine their conversation over the miracle that Jesus had worked. Now there they made made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard. Now spikenard was a perfumed oil that was imported from India. And it was super expensive. It was worth about a year's wages. In fact, this may have constituted Mary's life savings. Well, she took the oil and she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Now, Jesus had brought her brother back from the dead. Now, no cost is too extravagant to show him how much she adores him. And nowhere in the scriptures do we find an act that better epitomizes true worship than right here. No one required Mary to pour out her expensive oil. As worship is always born out of love, it's voluntary, never out of compulsion or legalism. True worship is not so much about ritualistic or religious observance as it is a romantic thing. It's love that flows from the heart. Mary's expression was the overflow of an exuberant heart toward Jesus. And then one of his disciples, now in contrast, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who had betrayed him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And John adds, This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box. And he used to take what was put in it. Now, Judas's noble-sounding concern was really just a smokescreen. He wasn't worried about the poor. He was worried about his own pockets, his own purse. Judas was the treasurer of the group, apparently. And it's a good thing he had never been audited, for it would have been scandalous. Judas had been skimming off the top. He was pilfering, but notice his excuse is pragmatism. In essence, he's saying... What about the enormous needs in the world, the missions and the soup kitchens and the homes for unwed mothers? Why waste wealth on worship? But understand, worship is not as practical a thing as it is a spiritual thing. 
And only those who love God and want to relate to him spiritually understand worship. Worship is not designed to satisfy or benefit human tastes. Worship is an attempt to bless the heart of God. It's unselfish and non-utilitarian and relational. You see, worship is like buying a dozen roses for your wife. I know you guys do this all the time. But practically speaking, flowers are a waste of money. Sorry, ladies. Oh, they bloom a few days and then they shrivel up and die. They serve no good function. But relationally, oh, flowers are a valuable gesture to the person you love. They're worth every penny. But flowers are only appreciated by lovers, and so it is with worship. Obviously, Judas here was not a lover of God. The name Judas means praise, but Judas knew nothing of real praise in worship. If he had, he would never have objected to Mary's extravagance. And then verse 7 tells us, but Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always But me, you do not have always. You know, perfumes were placed on deteriorating corpses to mask the odor. But Mary believed that the body of Jesus would not rot. She believed in the resurrection that he had foretold. In fact, she had seen Jesus raise her own brother from the dead. And so here she anoints him before his burial. You know, it's interesting, we'll discover later that Mary of Bethany was not among the women who came to the tomb on Easter Sunday, as you might expect. And why? It was because in her heart she had already anointed Jesus. Now, a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Celebrity culture was Alive and well, even in those days. And here, the resurrected Lazarus was quite the celebrity. You know, it's interesting when you look closely at these three family members, the two sisters, Mary and Martha, and then Lazarus, you'll find the three ingredients of Christian discipleship. Martha was known for her busyness, her her work, her service of the Lord. Mary was famous for her worship. And of course, Lazarus was the ultimate witness. Notice that. Work. Worship and witness, these should be our three priorities. And then verse 10 uncovers a scheme. But the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death also. Because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Lazarus was such an impressive witness for Jesus that he had been raised from the dead. That he too was on the priestly hit list. And I don't know why the Jews weren't afraid to kill Lazarus. Jesus might just resurrect him again. Well, verse 12 says, The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast. During Passover, the city of Jerusalem would be swarming with visitors. The permanent population was about 100,000 people. But during Passover, it would swell to over 2 million. Big crowds in Jerusalem. And so when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem... They took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, which means save now. Hosanna was a political statement. It was a cry of liberation. Palm branches were a symbol of Israel. They spoke of Jewish nationalism and independence from Rome. 
The Jews this day turned Jesus' entry into the city into a political rally. They wanted salvation from Roman rule, not just freedom from sin and selfishness. And so they shouted out Psalm 118, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Psalm 118 was known as a Messianic song. And yet here they saw their Messiah as a political deliverer, not as a spiritual savior. But then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written. And John now quotes from Zechariah 9, verse 9. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. The prophet had predicted that the Messiah would come to Jerusalem riding on the back of a burrow. Jesus' triumphant entry here was predicted by a host of Hebrew prophets. Daniel 9 pinpointed the exact day, 500 years in advance. You know, usually Jesus steered away from the public spotlight. You know how often he told people after he worked a miracle not to tell anybody. But not here. Here he does something different. His entrance into Jerusalem was the only public demonstration Jesus ever orchestrated, and he did so to fulfill Scripture. Now, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. The significance of these events must have dawned on the disciples sometime after his resurrection. Therefore, the people who were with him when he had called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, you see that you you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. It had just been a few days since the resurrection of Lazarus. And that had fueled these large crowds. It had produced this enormous reception that Jesus was receiving. Well, verse 20 tells us something that happened. Now, there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip was the only disciple with a Greek name. And thus, these Greeks chose Philip to ask for an interview from Jesus or with Jesus. They figured that he would be more sympathetic to Greeks. Philip came and told Andrew, and then in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Now, we're not told if Jesus ever personally responded to these Greeks. We're only told what he told Andrew and Philip in response to their request. But Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Ever hear the expression, 15 minutes of fame? You know, at some point, everybody gets their own brief time in the spotlight, their 15 minutes, so to speak. Well, here Jesus announces that his moment of glory has come. You know, it's strange to think of Jesus as having a single moment of glory, 15 minutes, so to speak. Jesus' life was full of glory. I mean, what about the mountaintop where he was transfigured in the bright light of his eternal splendor? Jesus' life seems glorious from start to finish. And yet here he says, the hour has come 
that the Son of Man should be glorified. Jesus' moment of glory has arrived. And what monumental event do you think that would include? A few lightning bolts? A few claps of thunder? How about a wooden cross? Jesus' crucifixion was, in his mind, his glorification. The cross was the culmination of his coming. The cross was the ultimate act of his obedience. It was the display, the brightest display of his character. It was the greatest fulfillment of divine purpose. It all occurred six hours on a cross. It was his moment of glory. We're told in verse 24, Most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Plant a kernel of wheat, and the moisture in the soil softens its shell. It releases its seeds. Those seeds germinate and sprout and then grow toward the sunshine. But here's the point. The mystery of life involves death. When that kernel of wheat dies to being a kernel, it becomes a harvest of wheat. And nowhere is this principle of life from death more evident than at the cross of Jesus. For it was the Lord's death that spawned life for millions. Jesus is the single grain of wheat that falls to the ground and ends up producing a global harvest. And this principle of life and death applies to us as well. For we're told next, he who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Real life doesn't start until you're first willing to die to yourself, to your own selfishness. Verse 26, for if anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. And then Jesus says, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Jesus was putting his best foot forward, and it was not a reluctant, hesitant foot. Jesus was born to die. He referred to himself as the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. The magi, remember, gave him myrrh, a burial spice, as a baby shower gift. His journey has now led him to the foot of the cross. He's not about to cop out now. He prays, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. It was an audible voice that everyone could hear, saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Imagine those surrounding Jesus, they heard the voice of God. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Jesus didn't have to hear the voice of God from heaven to be assured of his mission, but his disciples did. And during the next dark hours that would follow, I'm sure they recalled God's voice thundering from heaven, thundering in their ears. The Father had said this was all to glorify Jesus. 
And according to Jesus, there were two reasons why a gory cross became his moment of glory. For we're told on the cross, the world was judged and its ruler cast out. You know the values of this world. B3, that's the values of this world. What's this world all about? Beauty, brains, and brawn. That's what makes the world go round. People are trying to look beautiful. They're trying to get smart. They're trying to build muscles. That's what the world is all about. And yet, on the cross, Jesus was none of the above. God judged the way of this world by using the opposite to win our salvation. Think about the cross. There was nothing beautiful here. It was an ugly picture, an ugly scene. There was nothing smart or there was no wisdom exhibited here. No, this was foolishness in the eyes of men. And there was nothing muscular. This appeared weak in the estimation of men. Jesus used the exact opposite of what this world values what was ugly and foolish and weak, to win our salvation. And in doing so, he judged the values of this world. And he defeated the instigator and promoter of those worldly values. Satan's scheme was exposed and defeated on the cross. His ultimate closure is now just a matter of time. But in the meantime, Jesus' moment of glory is accomplishing its purpose. For we're told in verse 32, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. It's ironic, but the cross is a magnet which once raised up, draws human hearts out of death and darkness into God's life and light. See, the cross is where the broken find healing. And where sinners find forgiveness and where the guilty and bitter sense love, it's the one lighthouse in this stormy sea called life. Verse 34, the people answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? Here the Jews understand the phrase lifted up as a euphemism for the cross. But in their minds, they're thinking, how can this apply to the Messiah? The Old Testament predicted that Messiah would be an everlasting king who would reign over an everlasting kingdom. Here they're looking for excuses not to believe in Jesus. And so Jesus said to them, a little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. Apparently, this was Jesus' last exchange with the crowd. From now until the end, his words will be directed to his closest followers. We're getting closer now toward the cross. And here's John's verdict on the crowds who had followed Jesus. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled. And he quotes from Isaiah 53, verse 1, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe because Isaiah said again, and this time he quotes from Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10, 
He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts in turn, so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. The Jews' rejection of Jesus had also been fulfilled, a fulfillment of Scripture. Well, verse 42, Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him. They were intimidated. Lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Friends, what an indictment. What kind of insanity causes a man to forfeit the approval of Almighty God to pacify peons and to impress imbeciles? And of course, this continues today. Well, folks believe in Jesus, but they don't confess him. They're intimidated. They're afraid. The fear of reprisals at work or from their own family or by their friends intimidate them. Don't you know it's better to get high marks in heaven than to be spoken of well on earth? Think of the regret this will cause to put an invitation to the country club or a spot on the foursome, or popularity at school ahead of glorifying God. What a tragic mistake. Don't you make that mistake. Well, then Jesus cried out and he said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. This was a declaration of his deity. Again, he's saying that the Father and Jesus are one And then verse 46, I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. If you deny the evidence If you ignore the obvious about Jesus, it's not Jesus who judges you. He loves you. It's your own rejection of him that brings judgment on you. He says, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the father who sent me gave me a command that I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the father has told me, so I speak. Now, John chapter 13, verse 1, to me, is one of the most amazing verses in all of the Bible. Listen closely as I read it. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were with him in the world, he loved them to the end. Did you hear that? He loved them to the end. Now, these words become all the more meaningful when you read them at the end of chapter 19. After the disciples have argued among themselves over who's the greatest. After Peter, James, and John have been sleeping rather than praying with Jesus. After Judas betrays his master with a kiss. After Peter goes out and denies Jesus three times. 
after all the disciples forsake Jesus and flee at his arrest, then read these words. He loved them to the end. The disciples let him down. They broke his heart. Jesus was forsaken by the very people he came to save. And to me, the strongest proof of his deity was not his walking on water or his multiplying to fish and chips or even busting up Lazarus' funeral. It was this love right here that he loved his disciples to the end. That despite the personal hurt he endured, Jesus loved them to the end. And only God loves like that. Well, notice verse 2. And supper being ended... This was the Passover supper, the Seder meal. And this is the night before Jesus was crucified. We're told after supper had ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God. And when you read this, you need a drum roll in the background. This is high drama. It's saying here that Jesus' origin and destiny are divine. He begins and ends with God. All things are in his hands. He holds the mysteries of life and the power of nature and the force of creation are all at his disposal. What an impressive set of credentials. In other words, the universe is the Lord's workbench. Now, what will Jesus do with all this power, with all this authority? What tool will the master use to fix a broken world? Verse 4. He rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. What does Jesus use to change the world? He picks up a towel and a bowl. You know, Jerusalem streets were dirty. And when you entered a house, you always got your feet washed. It was a common courtesy. But washing footsies was a degrading job. It was only for the lowest slaves. Only Gentile slaves would towel off toes. In fact, it was against rabbinical law for a Jew to wash someone's feet. Jesus' job is to fix a fallen world. It's to change our hearts. His resources are unlimited now. All power is given to him. Now, what does he do? How does he use that power? He picks up a towel and a water bowl, and he washes dust off his disciples' feet. What a strange way to change the world. I like how one author interprets this earth-shattering event. He writes, Until that moment, the whole point of things had been for someone to get on top. And once he had gotten on top, to stay on top. Or else attempt to get farther up. But this man, already on top, rabbi, teacher, master, God himself, got down on the bottom and began to wash the feet of his followers. In that one act, Jesus symbolically overturned the whole social order. See, prior to this moment, the world was a pyramid 
And the goal was to climb up to the pinnacle of that pyramid. Greatness was measured by the number of people who served under you. But Jesus flips the pyramid over. Greatness in his kingdom is now measured by the people you serve, not who serve you. Jesus chose to change the world by redefining its concept of greatness. He climbed as low as you can go. He stripped away his right to be served. He took a towel and a bowl. He became a servant, and he washed a bunch of feet. Verse 6, then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? In other words, no way, Jose. I'm not letting you wash my feet. Now, it's interesting John says that this took place after supper. But when you flip over to Luke chapter 22, it tells us that after dinner, at the same moment, a rivalry broke out among the disciples. They began arguing over who was greatest. You know, usually feet were washed when the guests first entered the house. It's now after dinner, and everybody still has dirty feet. Obviously, the disciples felt too good to wash feet, they were too proud. Now imagine, in the midst of their feud, in the midst of their fussing over who's greatest, Jesus gets up. He walks over. He takes a basin. He fills it with water. And he starts washing their feet. It was stunning, especially for Peter here. This was so foreign to his ideas of authority and greatness. This action just doesn't compute for Peter. And so he resisted. He pushes back. And it seems that the Lord understood. We're told Jesus answered and said to him, what am I doing, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And so Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only then, but also my hands and my head. Peter wasn't always a quick study, but he was sincere, that's for sure. And here he says, well, if you have to wash me for me to be part of you, Lord, then don't stop with my feet. Wash my whole body. Peter's giving his all to Jesus. Notice verse 10. Jesus said to him, but he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. In other words, Peter... You don't need your whole, your whole body washed. You see, when a person came to a social event, he would always go to the public bathhouse, and he would take a bath first. Then he would walk to the party in his laced-up sandals. And by the time he arrived at the party, his feet were now dirty, but only his feet. The person didn't need another bath. All he needed was the street dust to be washed off his feet. And this is the case for a Christian. Hey, come to Jesus and you get a bath. I call it a blood bath. He bathes you completely. The blood of Jesus cleanses you from all your sin, past sin, present sins, even future sins. In Christ, your inner man is spick and span. You're as clean as you can get. But outwardly, we still have to walk through this wicked world, don't we? And from time to time, we pick up street dust. The world influences our attitude and our lingo and our habits and our disposition. We get affected by the worldly associations and surroundings 
that we rub up against. The world's negativism tends to stick to us. Hey, we don't need another bath. Our inner man has been washed once and for all by the blood of Jesus. What we need are daily and regular foot washings where the influence of this world get knocked off. Jesus says to his disciples, you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him, that is Judas. Therefore he said, you are not all clean. And then verse 12, so when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. And what a memorable example this was. In fact, some groups have actually taken Jesus' example literally. They have foot washings. You ever been to a foot washing? Usually when you plant it, you always clean your feet ahead of time and get the lint out between your toes and everything. It's not really very authentic. But when you, you have an impromptu foot washing, that gets real. That becomes emotional. If you've ever been to one, you know how emotional it is. It's amazing to be humbled that way and humble someone. Well, there are groups, church groups, that, that believe that there are three ordinances. There's some that baptism, communion, and foot washing. Most churches, though, only recognize baptism and communion. Here's the test that we use here at Calvary Chapel. Was it initiated by Jesus? Was it practiced by the early church? And was it taught in the New Testament letters? Well, baptism and communion pass on the first, on all three tests, but foot washing fails on the last two. But if foot washing was never meant to be ritualized, understand it is meant to be actualized. In fact, we can wash each other's feet even without a towel and a bowl. Did you realize that? See, the world beats us up and drags us down. It defiles us and it dirties us. Thus, when we encourage someone, when we speak healing words into another person's life, when we do an act of kindness, when we reinforce each other's identity in Christ or build up each other's faith, we're actually washing each other's feet. When was the last time you washed your spouse's feet? Or your children's feet? Or your boss's feet? Hey, be great in God's kingdom. Aspire to be a foot washer. Notice verse 16, Jesus says, Most assuredly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed, that is, happy are you if you do them. Oh, now wait a minute. Wait a minute, Pastor Sandy. This is not what I expected. Jesus just told us that if we really want to be happy, we need to start washing feet. This was not what I thought is going to make me happy. But why not give it a try? What do you got to lose? Most of the time, you're not happy anyway. <laughs> Why not try washing somebody else's feet? Why not try speaking kind words to people around you? Why not try to be a giver rather than a taker? You might just be surprised 
how happy that makes you. Start washing feet. Jesus is blessed. We'll be you. Verse 18, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. And here Jesus quotes King David in Psalm 41, verse 9, when he was betrayed by his counselor, Ahithophel. Now Judas is similarly betraying Jesus. Verse 19, now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Rather than a surprise, Jesus wants Judas' betrayal uh, to be a fulfillment of prophecy. It should affirm his deity, for he had told them ahead of time that it would happen. Verse 20, most assuredly I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. And when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. When the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. And this is the moment that Leonardo da Vinci captures in his famous painting, The Last Supper. The disciples are looking at each other with these quizzical facial expressions, wondering who is the one, who's the betrayer? You know, it's a testimony to Jesus' love for Judas that the disciples didn't already know that Judas was the betrayer. Jesus Jesus knew from the beginning that Judas would betray him, but apparently he never tipped his hand. If it had been me, I would have assigned Judas the dirty work. Hey, Judas, you got permanent latrine duty, buddy. Uh, But that was not the way Jesus handled it. He never did anything to be spiteful toward Judas. To the contrary, Judas was given every opportunity to repent. Now, there was leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. And that was just a humble way for John to speak of himself. Simon Peter, therefore, motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Peter wants John to ask Jesus to identify the betrayer. Then, leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now, now understand how this went down. Jesus and his men were probably eating at a Roman table known as a triclinium. It sat low to the ground and it was in a U-shape. The host, which was Jesus this night, sat at the base of the U. There were no chairs, so everyone reclined on pillows. And since most folks are right-handed, to free up their eating hand, they braced on their left elbow. John then was leaning toward Jesus' shoulder, which placed him in the seat to Jesus' right. Peter spoke to John, so he must have been next to him, second seat to Jesus' right. Since Jesus could dip his bread in the bowl with Judas, it meant that Judas was sitting to his left. And understand, the seats adjacent to Jesus were positions of honor. John was on Jesus' right hand. Judas was on his left hand. And so in the midst of the meal, a host could honor his guests by dipping bread into the sauce together. It was a way of toasting your friendship. Catch this picture. 
Jesus must have loved Judas. For it's amazing, he toasted Judas and their friendship while Judas was plotting his betrayal. Recall verse 2. It was the devil who inspired Judas to betray Jesus. The temple guard didn't need Judas to identify Jesus. They knew him already. Satan moved Judas to betray Jesus in order to hurt Jesus, to wound Jesus. Imagine being betrayed by your best friend, the person whom you toast their friendship. The deepest cuts are caused by the people closest to us. That's always the case. Satan must have thought that he could use Judas to make Jesus bitter, cause him to abandon his mission. I believe Satan's goal was not to nail Jesus to the cross. It was to keep Jesus off of the cross. And therefore, we would have no forgiveness of sin. And yet Jesus went to the cross, and why? Because he loved his disciples to the end, even Judas. Verse 27 Now, after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor, having received the piece of bread. He then went out immediately, and it was night. Boy, it was night in more ways than one. And so when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. Remember, the cross was Jesus' moment of glory. At the cross, we see man at his worst, but Jesus at his best. God is glorified in him. God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you. The word commandment in Latin is mandatum or mandate. And this is why the Thursday of Passion Week is called Monday Thursday. Jesus gave them a new mandate. And here it is. That you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now, if you read Leviticus chapter 19, you might argue that Moses had already told Israel to love one another. How is this a new commandment? But don't miss what Jesus does here. He adds five transforming words to this command that turn it into a new concept. It's this revolutionary phrase, as I have loved you. Oh, the Jews were expected to love, but not as Jesus loved. When you love, do you love people to the end? A friend lets you down? Do you still love them? A parent ignores you? Do you still love that person? A spouse betrayed you? Did you stop loving them right then? A child rejects you? Have you stopped loving that person or are you determined to be like Jesus and love them to the end? Notice verse 35. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is the mark of a Christian. 
Not that you carry a big fat Bible under your arm. Or that you got these cool witness t-shirts you wear. Or that you got a fish bumper sticker on your car. It's not your Bible knowledge or your theology or expertise in apology. It's not your church involvement or your good deeds or your ability to sing. What marks you as a Christian? It's that you love one another. And you love each other as Jesus loved you. Notice verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterwards. And of course, Jesus was speaking of the cross. You know, church history tells us that in 65 AD, Peter was martyred for his faith. He was sentenced to crucifixion of all things. But he considered himself unworthy to be crucified as his Lord. And so he had them turn him upside down on the cross to be crucified. When Peter is martyred, I'm sure he was full of the Holy Spirit. But he's full of it here, all right. But not the Holy Spirit. He's full of hubris and self-confidence at this point. For Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Peter's headed for a crushing defeat. And yet, as with all his men, Jesus loved Peter. He loved him. To the end. Do you love people to the end? I hope you love like Jesus loves. And I hope you realize this morning that that's how Jesus loves you. He's not finished with you. He's not done with you. You may have failed him. You may have disappointed him. But Jesus still loves you. In fact, he's going to love you and see you through to the end. Father, we thank you.